On the Empire Podcast this week, we have more members of the crew of the Starship Enterprise than the actual Starship Enterprise, as Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto, Sophia Batella, John Joe, and Carl Urban join us for chats. All that and the usual news and nonsense in the movie podcast that is aware that Sophia Batella's character in Star Trek Beyond is not a member of the Enterprise crew. Don't write in. Don't sue me. Please don't sue me. I have no money. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. After last week's interruption by Star Wars celebration, we're back as regularly scheduled with something of a Star Trek celebration. See, we're all inclusive here. We're fine. It's a beautiful thing. You know, as long as it has star in the title, we love it. It's all good. Uh, this week, I'm joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning. First up, as you just heard, is our geek queen, a lady whose favourite version of Star Trek is a holodeck spin-off series. Did you know about this? Uh, where two young ensigns, uh, Sam and Dean, uh, run around fighting demons and taking their shirts off. It's, uh, <laughs> of course, Star Trek Winchester. Hello, Helen O'Hara. Hello. There was a fabulous news story this week that I'd just like to mention while we're on the subject of, of Star Trek Winchester, um, okay. which said that, which did a poll of Republican and Democrat voters' favourite TV shows. Oh. And the only one in the top three for both was Supernatural. Now, I'll be honest, the whole poll just didn't look very convincing. <laughs> but I'm still taking it as a win. Supernatural has the power to bring a divided America together. And isn't that wonderful? What was the Republicans' number one? Supernatural. That was number one? Yeah. What was the Democrats' number one? Oh, I don't remember. Was it Keeping Up with the Kardashians? It wasn't, no. Okay. To their credit. <laughs> okay. Why wasn't uh, Deep Space Nine actually called Keeping Up with the Kardashians? I, it's one of the great unanswered questions, Chris. It really is. Mm. I guess because they didn't want to keep up with them so much as they wanted to, you know, remove the ill effects of their many years of rule of Bajor and, uh, and and try and forge a new society. Yes. There we go. Uh, there's the second person, uh, the second colleague of Sir Lethal Cunning, you just heard him, uh, making a welcome return to the pod booth after a long, long holiday going on a, some sort of art house trip of Europe. Uh, is our art house guru, a man whose favourite Star Trek movie is, of course, Aguirre, The Wrath of Khan. <laughs> it's Phil DeSimlian. How are you? Hi. It wasn't that long. Thank you for that intro. I'm you gave me that joke. A lot of shade for this holiday. It was only two weeks. That seems it's normal. two weeks. That's. I don't think I've ever had a two week holiday. I spent a week of that stuck down Francois Truffaut <laughs> Avenue, <laughs> um, in Brittany. Which, just it's to a be real clear, place. is a road. It's okay, a real place. Yeah. I shall tweet it later. Uh-huh. Um, I've been trying to think of a joke about what that road might be like for <laughs> a week and a half now, and I've got nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, thanks. Welcome back. Wait, hold on. Welcome <laughs> back. It's good no to be back. Else, no one else has said it. So welcome back, Phil. It's good to be back. Had to say it thanks. Welcome back, Phil. I have a cold, by the way. I don't know how I've managed to get a cold. I was on boiling 32 degree heat, and somehow I've managed to get a cold from that. Is that normal? Is that? Did you go into an air-conditioned room at any point? Uh, yeah. There you go. Do you think that's it? Yeah. Also, the director had a cold. But we didn't kiss or anything. Well, you say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I signed an NDA, Helen. <laughs> what happens on the set of Insert Name of Film Here uh, stays on the set of Insert Name of Film Here. <laughs> so, well, there you go. I'm just, I'm just saying I've, I've not got an insight into how you get all those exclusives. I know. Well, a, a gentleman never tells. But I tell you what, I'm very, very excited <laughs> about Insert Name of Film Here. Uh, looked really, really good. The, the sets were very, very good. The actors were particularly good. It's especially um, Insert Name of Actor Here as Insert Name of Character Here in Insert Name of Film Here. 
And that's enough. Uh, that. <laughs> How did you get Stephen Toast to voice, voice over all of your embargoes? Incredible. Um, so yeah, the cold. So I may die at some point during this podcast, okay. but hopefully, uh, hopefully mean, we'll be okay. Helen <laughs> reacts to that with the... <laughs> all right, so resilient. we have a, a question. This comes via email. I've cut it down massively. So it comes from someone called Ruse Fisser. I hope I've pronounced that right. I'm so sorry if I haven't. Anyway, the, there's a whole long email about how Jeff Goldblum makes a weird sound in Independence Day. Uh, in Jurassic Park, he makes that laugh, doesn't he? He goes, ah, or something like that. Uh, <laughs> so the, just the question is, do you have a favourite movie moment where a movie character makes a weird sound? <laughs> just a really good question. I love this question. <laughs> I have no good answers for it, but I love the question. I have one good answer. Can I go first and get my one good answer out of the way? Because I think Phil has much better answers. And Phil has a Phil has an audio round. He's yeah, going to he have, uh, he's got like an AV presentation. Yeah, preview of coming attractions there um my favorite is the sound that loki makes after the hulk has hulked him <laughs> at the end of avengers it's just a little sort of <laughs> so uh so yeah i think that's a very good song do it again it. it's sort of a, a whimper a whimper it's a whimper <laughs> it's somewhere between a moan and a whimper it's a mimper. but not not a, not a sexual moan it's, it's a moan no, of someone who's in, in yeah well, Loki, I mean, you never know. Hey, whatever whatever floats his boat. Absolutely. Who knows what happens? Well, it happens in Asgard today. I've said that done again. Um, but yeah, who knows what floats his boat? Indeed. Sexually speaking. And let's not speculate, because I feel like that way lies a lot of confusion and possibly angry Taylor Swift fans. So uh, Yes, perhaps. Perhaps. Uh, but that's, that's a good noise. Phil Camp. Yes. Movie character makes a weird sound. Uh-huh. Hard to look past all of Dick Van Dyke's dialogue in Mary Poppins. <laughs> <laughs> Equally Don Cheadle. Do we understand what he's 11. saying even to this oh, day? Cockney choppy do da do da. Uh, yeah, oh, oh, yeah, the chimney, uh, I think, is one of his uh, monologues. And oh. I just, there's a few. If you Google weird character noises, there's just an endless number of Matthew McConaughey supercuts. Mm. Now, I hadn't, until I watched one of them, hadn't realised that it is kind of a stock in trade for him. In the same way that Brad Pitt is always eating. Yeah. Matthew McConaughey has this thing where he just makes weird, presumably unscripted noises. I think the finest of which is probably Wolf of Wall Street. Wolf of Wall Street with the... Mm. Yeah, with his whole like, chest. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Which is something, chest he, something he was doing in yeah. real life. Yeah, between takes. Beforehand, yeah. yeah. And basically Scorsese was like, that's interesting, do that. Yeah. So maybe that's just the thing he does. That's maybe just a personal tick. Um a lot of love for Steve Carell's chest waxing scene in the 40-year-old version. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly Noises. Clarkson! Yeah, Kelly Clarkson. Um, as an impromptu kind of howl of pain. Um, I do have an audio presentation to make Ooh. because I think my favourite is probably... It's the moment in The Three Amigos where oh. they're breaking back into the studio, <laughs> the three of them, and Steve Martin is on the wall and he's trying to attract the attention of Chevy Chase and Martin Short <laughs> without giving away the fact that he's he's actually a human being shouting for their attention. Have a listen to this. Ha ha ha!
They're literally 15 feet below him throughout this entire thing, just sitting there obliviously. That's amazing. Um, How did you do that? How did you do that? I don't know. It was magic. I just magic. Um, And you can't really have this without talking about Michael Winslow in Police Academy. Mm -hmm. Can you? No, you can't. No, you can't. Or or indeed in Spaceballs also. Or in Spaceballs. Or if you Google him, um, he actually, there's a YouTube clip of him performing the sound of 32 typewriters. He does the history of the typewriter in noises. (laughs) It's incredible. That's amazing. When he got to the iPad, uh, it it got complicated for him. (laughs) But yeah. That's that's a really good answer. I have to say, I, I love that Three Amigos clip. We used to use that in Empire. Uh, that the, some of those sounds because there was one year we were covering the Oscars and Empire being as organised as we are um, we had a TV at one end of a long corridor and uh, a computer that was capable of updating the website at the other end of the corridor and so we were watching the Oscars one year uh, in this setup and I had to basically email the copy to Amar and then attract his attention to let him know that the copy was there so he could put it on the website and we literally did start doing waka waka <laughs> look up here um to let him know that the email was in his inbox because obviously he was you know busy working and wasn't checking his email every five seconds nice yeah it was it was practical pretty, uses for practical uses for odd noises made by characters in movies there ka-ka, you go. Ka-ka. Ama, ama. <laughs> perfect <laughs> And if um, I was listening, I'm sure that brings back wonderful memories. Hey. I love uh, uh, Jack Nicholson as the Joker in Batman, where he goes, you know, he has that line, he goes, well, you know, you read the newspaper, he goes, winged freak terrorizes, wait till they get a load of me. And then he goes, oop, oop, oop. And then he just <laughs>, laughs maniacally. I, just, I, I always, you know, love that oop. In fact, I, I may say it in the office from time to time. There's tons. Again, there's there's tons, but yeah, I think Phil's nailed it. Have I? I think you've nailed Sorry. it, man. No, that's, no, that's good. That's uh, yeah, to. saves that's us working harder. You know, any you know Clint Eastwood, <laughs> any, any characters like that, we go <clears throat> like a little moan or a Harvey Keitel. You know, the Harvey Keitel howl of anguish, which you probably hear if you're on set with him on one of those direct line TV adverts <laughs> just before the cameras start rolling. <laughs> Does <laughs> it go? As he rocks back and forth. Trying to figure out what the hell happened, um, but you know, you know, Reservoir Dogs. Whenever he's he learns the truth at the end about a certain character, I don't want to give away spoilers. Obviously, for this movie, it's it's only just come out, um, and uh, he's like, it's a bit like that, isn't it's it? An and then uh, he does the same noise in Bad Lieutenant when he's rocking back and forth uh, in in the nutty, mm-hmm. and then when he's pleasuring himself by the side oh, of the road but uh, you know but it's the Harvey Keitel scream of anguish I quite like the Al Pacino sort of just general exclamations oh hoo hooah, hoo that's a good one yeah that's and all the all the sort of booyahs you get from marines and such as well yeah, yeah that's, good. that's a belter that's yeah. a belter um, Darth Vader makes a funny noise has anyone ever noticed Does that he? Yeah. no I've never, nope. never yeah. not picked that up no. you ever noticed no you do not know the power of the dark side Watch it again. I'm going to be listening they out may have, that. They may have taken it down for the special edition, oh, okay. in fairness. I'll, I'll try and get the theatrical cut. <laughs> yeah. It's true. It's true. Your lack of faith disturbs me. <laughs> that's Pee Wee Herman, isn't it? <laughs> Basically, that's just... Pee Wee oh. Herman as Darth Vader would be amazing. I think we've really smashed this question. Mm. My apologies to Ruse Fizzer. Um, if you think we've missed anything out, and of course we have, because there's approximately... How many movies have they made? 
I mean, how many movies do you think they've made? Lots. What, they? The, they, yeah, them. them. You know, them. Them in the world. Yeah. How many movies? I mean, 100,000? Mm. A few more? 100,000? I don't know. 100,000 movies? Well, That's a lot I don't of know. movies. 1,000 movies a year or 100 years? That's a lot of movies. Yeah. So we're saying at least 100,000 movies. Probably more. Probably more. Probably yeah. more. Because lots of the early ones, I mean, they were just, you know, racing out one a week. I mean, I don't know if we're counting surviving movies. Obviously, that's a different issue. Um, and of course, you've got to take in Nollywood and Bollywood and all the rest. Yeah. Um, we literally have no idea. We really we? don't. I wonder if anyone has counted it up. Please, if you know, let us know. Mm, yeah, please do. Because that, um, what my point is, there's a lot of movies. And, that is correct, yes. And there might be some out there we haven't seen have got incredible no, noises. I, I don't there. think there are any we haven't seen, are there? Um, I mean, there's some maybe you and I haven't seen, but certainly none that Phil no, has Phil, Phil, Phil picks up the slack for us. <laughs> I've seen about 67 movies. 67 movies. Wow, that many. Beat that. Yeah. Oof. I've only seen... I've seen five. Um, no, come on, there are more Marvel movies There's been more Marvel movies than, movies that. than that. <laughs> this is true. This is true. There's been loads of Marvel movies. Um, but so, yeah, so the, the point is there's loads of uh, noises. If I think of something during the rest of the podcast, I will, I will say it. If you want to have your question read out in the Empire Podcast, do send them in to us. Uh, we're on Twitter as at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast. Uh, we're on Facebook as Empire Magazine. And you can email us podcast at empireonline.com. Right. Let's have some movie news. Right. There is, uh, there's quite a few interesting stories this mm. week, although there are no huge, huge, massive ones, I would say. Um, Nothing huge came from Celebration last year, uh, last week, because we recorded our podcast on Sunday morning, and then they had the future of Star Wars panel, and nothing really interesting came from that, No, did it? I mean, I they mean, confirmed Alden Ehrenreich as young Han Solo, but I, I think everybody in the world knew that was coming, so that was not a huge um, think he did? revelation. I think he did. He actually mentioned, he did discuss it in the panel, not having been able to tell people, and people kept coming up to him and congratulating. <clears throat> him over the last two months since the news broke and he was sort of going you and doing like <laughs> finger guns back at them but not saying anything because he wasn't able to say thank you because obviously it wasn't mm. it wasn't announceable people yet. have been congratulating Chewbacca as well well yes well who will be in do you Young think those two have been hanging out Alden Aaron Reich and Chewbacca I mean, get to I know think, each other yeah they've, they've got to get that chemistry right don't they and yeah they do indeed he makes some weird noises doesn't he Chewbacca Han Solo Chewbacca hey. I've yeah, never noticed. No, I never really noticed Han making a weird noise. Chewy. Chewy. Chewy Chewy makes weird noises, yeah. Although they're for him, they're not weird. No, true. Yeah, that's just sensible dialogue. Yeah, it's you're very just racist. Being, you're, being, you're, you're being a Wookieist, yeah. Phil. Anyway, there was news. Um, so, other other news, other oh, yeah. non-Star Wars news this week. Uh, the Divergent series. The last film didn't do so brilliantly. And they're now talking about finishing it off, not as a theatrical release, but as a TV movie which would then allow most of the film cast to step away and then be replaced by a TV cast launching a TV series, which is a pretty radical lack of faith, is it quite called, frankly. Is it called the, the Divergent Series Vehicle Reversing? <laughs> what is it called? It would still be known as Ascendant, but it would be a TV movie they're talking about. Just why bother? Well, because, you know, people like the series, I guess. Somewhere. Do they? Enough to make the film series increasingly Yeah, the, the, the last film wasn't uh, exactly great. But um, I don't know, maybe the, the, the world might be able to work better as a TV show, frankly, than it did as a movie. The problem is always that it had far too much backstory and not enough mm. actual story. So I feel like maybe that would... Not enough front story. Indeed. Mm. That would maybe be the place for it. There seemed to be a lot of what young adult 
franchise properties vying for young adult dollars about yeah. the time when the last one came out there was the hunger games were still going maze runner had just got started i think yeah and it was just so inferior to to even the hunger games yeah. um big drop off big drop big off drop off i think 200 nearly 300 million for the second one and the first one went up and then it dropped by like i guess more than 100 million so projecting that forward doesn't look very good for it. Um, it's not a particularly great franchise. No, I didn't think at all. Uh, who knows? Maybe they're maybe they're trendsetters and pioneers. And certainly, we've had enough examples over the last few years of of movies that have tried to become franchises and stopped yeah. because of lack of audience interest. Percy Jackson, Mortal Instruments, uh, City of Bones, to name but two. Mm. So maybe maybe the answer is to downsize and go into TV and maybe there you find the audience and then who knows in Mortal 10 years time Mortal Instruments already show. has and, yeah. and they've they've discovered a even less exciting cast for TV anyway <laughs> the difference with this I guess is that it, it was a going concern you know it, it was a franchise that yeah. had, you'd thought had been established it's normally like does the first film work and then you make another one it's rare that you'll have two and then you know three in fact yeah. and then suddenly go uh, no one cares anymore <laughs> that's kind of bleak it is a and I'm bit sure tough. it'll be used as an example of like how this whole young adult franchise filmmaking is grinding to a halt. Yeah, and I think also it shows the the failure of the. I think I think basically this this is a bit of a referendum on, uh, if you'll forgive the word, um, on the decision to split the last book in two. It's enough. Divex it, if you will. Yes. Um, so there's there, it's enough of that. I think I think everyone is tired of that. It didn't do the Hunger Games any favors. It was really not going to do Divergent any favors. And I think like for example the Maze Runner. Uh, filmmakers will probably be taking a very, very close look at that as well. Speaking, though, of, of young adult stuff, uh, there is slightly happier news this week, and that is the news that uh, a We Free Men movie is coming from the Henson Company, working with Rihanna Pratchett. Now, the We Free Men is one of the Terry Pratchett books. It's set on the Discworld. It's sort of a, almost a spin-off of the main Discworld books, if you like. It has a slightly younger audience in mind. It has a teenage girl protagonist called Tiffany Aching who is a young girl with a talent for witchcraft and she basically sort of uh, becomes a witch essentially but she is helped on her way by the titular We Free Men they are the young tiny six inch high blue men of the clan Knack McFeagle um, they have a particular way of talking they are endlessly entertaining and I am actually really quite excited about this. So it's being developed with Rihanna Pratchett, who is Terry Pratchett's daughter, as the name might have clued you in. Uh, she's a very successful game story writer in mm-hmm. her own right. And she's kind of overseeing, I guess, the the Pratchett legacy through her company, Narrativia. Uh, so this, I think, is a really exciting prospect. I mean, the Henson Company would seem to be perfectly aligned with Pratchett's sense of humour and his sensibility, and I think it's it's a bit of a match made in heaven, so I'm actually really, really hyped for this one. Hyped, hyped, hyped. Yep, Pratchett, yep, Pratchett, yep. Pratchett, Pratchett. I don't know the uh, the Weavery men, actually. It, honestly, great, great yeah. stories, and, and they are just hilarious little characters, so I'm quite excited to see what they do here. There's There's a lot of chance for kind of little side comedy moments even in the middle of action scenes and their scale and their ferocity are are a wonderful kind of match like basically they should be the underdogs but they never ever see themselves as underdogs ever and will basically just march into battle against things you know a hundred times their size they will also sometimes be known to for example steal cows and sheep but what what they will do is literally just 
three or four of them to to a hoof mm. will pick up the animal and just run away with them. So you'll see rather startled sheep, apparently mm. moving stationary but moving backwards at speed uh, towards the Nack McFeagles sort of little mound home. Actually, I think I may have met some of these people going up in Northern Ireland. Yes, uh, in yes, fairness. yes. So they're, they're very, they're very it, similar. It sounds familiar. I think um, I went to school with a couple of them. It should be a lot of fun. And it is also a sort of a mini franchise within the Discworld universe, so it actually does have the, the prospect of sequels and so on down the line if this one does well. <clears> but it isn't in no way dependent on that and we don't have to split the last book in two. This is, these are exciting times. Exciting times. Phil Cantlin. Yeah, hi. Anything? Exciting news for me because I'm actually reading the book at the moment but the goldfinch by donna tart is Ooh. going to be made into a movie and it's directed by john crowley who you may know obviously from brooklyn um but also boy a which was um probably a good sort of calling card for this one in the sense that it's about a kind of young slightly troubled would you say <clears throat> kid who, yeah. who who sort of you meet him when he's 13 um, the Metropolitan Museum of Arts in New York. Mm-hmm. There's a terrorist attack which kills his mum, and then it kind of follows oh. him through his life. Yeah, that's the opener. That's how it opens. That's not a spoiler. Sad. That is the first few pages. Um, I'm currently reading this book at the moment. It's terrific. Mm-hmm. I'm on about port page 400 and something. So only 800 to go. About that's 800 a, to go. <laughs> that's a big old book. It's, a, it's a very. It's maybe that's a slight exaggeration, but it is a very lengthy book. Is it in big type? Because otherwise I might no. struggle. No. It Can someone read it to me? Otherwise I might struggle. Why don't you just wait for the film and the rest of us will read it? Could someone then read the <laughs> subtitles of the film to me? Okay. It just it feels like a lot of work. <laughs> it's kind of like a strange version of the um, Thomas Crown Affair in the sense that mm-hmm. when this terrorist attack, this bomb happens in the Met, the, the, the kid takes um, a Carol Fabritus painting off the wall yeah. in his sort of post-traumatic stress uh, state of mind and he keeps it through decades and the, the painting plays an important part in the in the story and uh, I think it's going to be a challenge to, to, to adapt yeah. this one I, w- I would imagine it's it's such a sprawling lengthy book and it follows one character so kind of forensically closely through his his childhood adolescence early adulthood that it's it's a real challenge this one to adapt you've got to have some seriously good presumably performances there you've got to have two or three <coughs> Yeah, you've got to have two or three good actors for that. You do because you follow him from I think he's thirteen when yeah. we meet him, and he grows up throughout the course of the book. So you can't use obviously the same actor and strong support around him as well. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'll be honest. I thought that Donna Tartt's first novel, Secret History, was the most sort of filmic mm-hmm. and cinematic, sort of set as a murder mystery with cultish overtones set on a sort of Ivy League style campus. That seemed much more contained than this. This goes off to Las Vegas. It goes off in different directions uh, and it is sprawling. It is so it'll be interesting to see. But I guess they've looked at John Crowley, not an American, but directed Brooklyn. So has a good strong sense of place mm. and New York in particular and directed Boyer, which, you know, had a Andrew Garfield as a kind of troubled, slightly troubled rite of passage type protagonist. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited about this. I hope it gets enough money to really give it scale yeah i think so too i mean i think i mean obviously brooklyn is a good kind of calling card as well in terms of adapting a novel uh, a much easier one i think in that sense um and it was probably a f- it was a fairly close adaptation not in all respects but it was you know reasonably close andrew garfield might not be a bad shout for the adult yeah version yeah i was thinking donald gleason donald gleason would be great yeah um and he falls in with a with a guy an older man called hobie who's an antiques uh, restorer yeah. um, we think Will Ferrell for that <laughs> or failing that maybe Stephen Fry 
I am perhaps slightly more up on Stephen Fry, but only only marginally. Will, Fer- Will Ferrell could do it. He could do it. He could do it. He could do it. Could but do yeah, anything. this is, I mean, it's, it's a fantastic, fantastic book. So if you haven't read it, highly recommend it. It is a fantastic book. So yeah, book. fingers crossed for the movie. This is great. Are there any superheroes in it? Let's say yes, Chris. Okay, I'm on board. A little bit of other news. Uh, some dates have been announced for 2019. 2019, one of the dates? Uh, yes, okay, I suppose then, it is. Are we good? Anyway, Edgar Wright's Shadows will apparently be out that year, which is something he's apparently been working on with David Williams. And it's a reworking of a project originally called Me and My Shadow, which was about a frustrated shadow that wanted to be free of his life with the world's most boring human a guy called Stanley Grubb. So it's sort of, I, I don't know, we don't know what Edgar's done with that yet. He's obviously busy at the moment finishing Baby Driver, but that is apparently next on his plate. Um, and also in animated news, uh, Shrek Forever After, you might have thought, was the fourth and final full-length feature mm-hmm. Shrek outing. Apparently there will be a Shrek 5 by public demand. I don't know. You know, every day when we come into this office, Helen, we have to fight our way through hundreds of Shrek fans who yeah. grab us and look us in the eye and go, when? When? Will oh, there when? be another Shrek? I mean, I'm. They, they haven't released any plot details yet, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it starts off with Shrek wanting to be alone and uh, oh, live like an ogre Helen. and then realising the family, value of family and friends. Because that's what happened in every single feature and short film about this character so far you're very cynical I am I, I, you know what would Shrek say when faced with such cynicism he'd say I want to be alone he'd go, and then he'd realise that he doesn't ogre. really Ooh, get in my belly and well that's fat bastard um, it's much the same I like most of the Shrek movies and it's, it's easy to forget now how huge the first two in particular yeah, were they were yeah. I mean enormously huge so I'm actually surprised it's taken them so long after Shrek forever after uh, to, uh, to come up with a new one uh, the Shrek exhibition in London is perpetually popular. Uh, the Shrek musical, which uh, starred, uh, I believe, Barry from uh, Four Lions as Shrek. True story, in fact. Did fans. it? Yeah. Did it? Yeah, he was the first Shrek in, in this country, Gosh, anyway. Wow. Anyway, I, listen, I'm, I, I'm very cynical about the plots of these films. Yeah. I'm not saying I hate the films. No, of course. I've quite enjoyed them. Yes. But they have all ultimately been... Oh, I want to be a, on my own. Part, yeah. And then, oh, no, I don't. I like my family, actually. I like Shrek's Forever After kind of It's a Wonderful Life treatment of, of the story. That was quite that was quite fun. I mean, that did something yeah. slightly different. Did I it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And it stranded him on his own as well. So he didn't have the fallback of Fiona and the donkey and why do I know these character names? But <laughs> it's, it's, Yeah, why do I know the name of the donkey? What's the name of the donkey in Shrek? <laughs> yeah, we'll see how it goes. Sure. We'll see how it goes. Well done, Shrek. Well done. And well done... Is it still DreamWorks who are doing yeah, it? Yeah, DreamWorks Animation. Well done then for, you know, not letting it lie. I've got some news. Yeah, what is that? it? I've got some huge news, guys. Come on then. So, the the third horseman in Adam Sandler's four-picture Netflix deal is uh, called Sandy Wexler, following hot on the heels, of course, of The Ridiculous Six and The Do-Over. Uh, but this one, I don't know, this one could be good. This one has it's a romantic comedy. Uh, he plays a talent manager. He has a group of eccentric clients, and then he falls in love with this newest client, who is a tremendously talented singer he discovers at an amusement park. He plays Sandy Wexler, of course. Uh, and the tremendously talented singer is played by a tremendously talented singer, Jennifer Hudson. Oscar winner, Jennifer Hudson. Okay. So, Ooh. I like Adam Sandler in rom-com mode. Um, I like Adam Sandler in most modes, but recently, as we've agreed on the podcast, he's gone off the rails spectacularly. And But who knows? Did anyone yeah. see the do-over? 
I watched it. What did you think? It looked okay. It wasn't, wasn't okay. Was it? <laughs> it wasn't awful. It was. And weird enough, awful. it wasn't really an Adam Sandler movie. It was, and it wasn't. Yeah. It was main. You it was know, just anyway. there. The focus was on David Spade. Yeah, like, it was um, kind of like Central Intelligence, but less funny. Right. Take from that what you will. But I the, like yeah. Central Intelligence. Yes. And then this week as well. So last week we discussed. There's some Star Trek Four news, so they're they're preparing for that. The Star Trek Beyond opens this week uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. So hopefully it'll do well enough to get a sequel. Because as you'll find out in a few minutes, we really like the film. Damn it! Spoiler. But last week, of course, there was the news that J.J. Uh, Abrams said that Chris Hemsworth was going to be in Star Trek Four. I keep calling it Star Trek Four; It's not. It's Star Trek Fourteen, mm-hmm. The next Star Trek movie, whatever it's going to be called. Um, and so he's going to be back as George Kirk, which is great because that role in many ways made him put him on the radar, put him on the map and, and set him on the road to Thor, which is fantastic. Very, very excited about that. And this week, of course, J.J. Uh, Abrams continued to give out some news about the next Star Trek. He said that obviously following the tragic death of Anton Yelchin recently, uh, that they will not be recasting Chekhov for the next movie. Yes, cor- they, uh, which is correct, I think. Which is correct. They don't know what they're going to do yet, whether he's going to be, whether he's going to die off screen or whether he's going to boldly go off on his own adventures and maybe be acknowledged at the beginning of the movie. Um, what, do you, what do you think uh, should happen? Uh, personally, I would not like to see that character uh, die in this in this timeline. Yeah, I think, I think they'll... they'll promote him out to Mm. an exciting new ship or something I think you know the way and again we don't want to get into spoilers for Star Trek Beyond but they they had a very classy in-story tribute to Leonard Nimoy in that Mm. film and I think they would aim to do something similar for Yelchin Uh, JJ's actual words were uh, there's no replacing him there's no recasting I can't possibly imagine that and I think Anton deserves better we knew going into this movie it would be a bit of a heartbreak just because of Leonard we had no idea just how devastating things would become so absolutely and I, I think you're absolutely right the very nature of Trek alone means he can, he can get a command somewhere else or a berth on another ship or you know stay in a space station or, or do anything so yeah. uh, I would like that character to remain alive within the, the Star Trek universe I think that would be a very Fitting tribute indeed, and of course, there's precedent for this. Um, you know, keeping Paul Walker alive at the yeah. end of Fast and Furious Seven. What an unexpectedly moving moment that was! So it'd be nice to see something like that for uh, Chekhov and Anton Yelchin in the next Star Trek movie. Definitely. Um, and there was also some sad news this week that the great Gary Marshall, best known in terms of film, I think, for directing the likes of Pretty Woman and Runaway Bride and most recently his most recent movie was Mother's Day which came out um, about a month or so ago over here but in TV he was a comedy giant as well and he had his, his fingers in many pies including Happy Days Hell's Bells Yeah, it's um, it's a very sad sad day really um, because I think he you know, listen his his latest film was I think we can all agree not a very good one but to be working to the end uh, at, at that age is is enormously impressive and I think it speaks to the enormous affection in which he was held in Hollywood. I mean, I think you look at his kind of filmography and his and his work and he seems like he was a fan as much as anything else. He seems like he genuinely just loved making movies, making TV shows. I saw him about a year ago in a <clears throat> in a Brooklyn Nine Nine cameo where he played a <laughs> robber and no one could believe he was a robber because he looked so sweet and, and elderly and you know everyone kind of treated them him like their grandpa, mm. um, and and but it was a really funny performance and I think he just did it 
presumably because he was just a big a, a fan of the show or something or a fan of some of the people involved and you just got that sense from his work because he was able to get you know even for something like Mother's Day he was able to get huge stars I think because people just had affection for him and I think that's so just on a personal level I think I think he's a great loss to many many people in Hollywood and then you know his work itself I mean great great TV shows you know Happy Days was a, obviously a phenomenon in the 70s which he created yeah which he created mm. um, and then out of that you know came Mork and Mindy Joni and Chachi all these Furniture, <laughs> all the ands, all the ands, um, and they were they were solid comedy premises, premises, premises that that work really well. I think he had a great eye for talent. You know, um, obviously Ron Howard went on to to great things. Um, Robin Williams, this was his first big role, really, and I think it. You know, it helped launch him. Uh, Julia Roberts in in Pretty Woman. She'd made films before, but, you know, that was the one that made her a star. There's no question about it. Um, he made Beaches. He made Overboard. I mean, come on. Yeah. What, what a great movie. <laughs> and, and The Princess Diaries, you know, say what you like for it. It's obviously got a younger focus, but it, Anne Hathaway was brilliant casting for that movie. Absolutely brilliant casting. So I just think he had a real, yeah, an eye for people, an eye for what worked. Yes, he told fairy tales no, they're not sort of, you know, good art house gems that are going to change cinema. But as a as a maker of fairy tales, he was rarely surpassed. He was a TV giant, wasn't he? Mm. I mean, I think he he was responsible for around about a thousand TV sitcom episodes, wow. which is phenomenal. But I think what shines through and shines through on all of the sort of fulsome tributes that have been paid to him this week is that he just really liked people and he liked characters. And one of his favourite sort of bits of direction for actors was just talk like a normal person. <laughs> if you show them something of themselves, they'll love you for it. And and that kind of comes across, you know, even in the films that, that didn't land in quite the same way, they're full of warmth and spirit. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, he's got a great filmography to, to revisit in coming weeks. Yeah. I'm just remembering Chris Pine in Royal um, Princess Diaries 2, Royal Engagement. Hard to forget, Chris Pine. I mean, yeah, how could you? It was terrible hair, but um, but it was one of his first leading roles, you know. So I think that, yeah, he really did have an eye. Yeah, absolutely. Frankie and Johnny, there's an overlooked one from his filmography. Al Pacino yeah, and Michelle yeah. Pfeiffer, that's a, that's a good one. Overboard, you're absolutely right. Beaches. Yeah, a lot of yeah. people worship that film. And it's easy to forget, actually. You know, I think it's very easy to go, oh, he was a director of fluffy rom-coms. And certainly Pretty Woman goes that way. But it's easy for, to forget how... Dark and kind of gritty is not the right word, but it, it's certainly uh, it's interesting for the first hour or so. Yeah, it's got some becomes, tone in it. That mm. film, it's not it's not purely, you know, yeah, fluffy. No, absolutely not. So there, there we go. Uh, what a what a comedy legend he was, Gary Marshall, who died this week, aged eighty one. Okay, time now for this week's guests, and I mean guests, because you're getting a clump of two guests, five people in total. Star Trek Beyond comes out this week, and when his cast came to London recently, I jumped at the chance to talk to pretty much all of them. Uh, first off, you're going to hear Carl Urban, Bones himself, and John Cho, a.k.a. Sulu, talking about all things Trek and the 50th anniversary, about Urban almost not coming back for this movie. And about Sulu's the sudden, sudden revelation that Sulu is now gay. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And then after that, you're going to hear Chris Pine, mm-hmm. Zachary Quinto, who plays Spock, and uh, Sophia Batella, who plays a new character called Jayla. Now, word of the wise in that one, we were beset by sound problems. Uh, so it may be a bit all over the shop, and it's a bit short as well. But we figured you might rather hear at least some of this than none of it. So there you go. Urban. Joe, 
Quinto, Pine, Batella. Enjoy. Uh, delighted to be joined in the Emperor Podcast by Carl Urban and John Joe. How are Thanks you, sir? Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Uh, congratulations both on the, on the film. It's, Thank uh, you. It's, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it, it, Carl, you've said in the past, uh, very recently actually, that you almost didn't come back for this one. That's right, yeah. Uh, John, did you have uh, uh, any thoughts about coming back for this one? Or, or were you both, in a way, locked in? How, how, did, that, how did that work for you? Um, I don't remember. I didn't have the, the uh, crisis that you did in terms of the mm. material... Uh, um, no, I, I didn't have that, that, that issue, but, mm. uh, I was concerned, you know, when you get it in three films in, you start, you know, you, you want to make sure your character's taken care of and you want to feel good about the work that you're going to do. And you want to make sure that you're, I, I become Sulu's biggest fan. So I want him to go somewhere interesting and I want him, and I, uh, you know, otherwise I, I don't want to do it. Mm. Yeah. And I, so I can see where you're coming from. Mm. Is the point that I'm trying to get to. Yeah. Well, for, for me, the issue was I was uh, not under contract to do another Star Trek film, and I was actually in the process of negotiating to do another film when mm. uh, the producers, the Star Trek producers, came and said, hey, well, we're doing this, you know, and it's going to be a direct conflict, so you have to choose. It's one or the other. Right. And it really wasn't until I talked to Justin Lin and he outlined his vision for not only the film but for the character of McCoy that I thought I'd be remiss to uh, to turn down this opportunity and I realized when I turned up in Vancouver it would have been a horrendous mistake not to be a part of it just for the to, to, for the opportunity to work with uh, yeah. with these guys again Bones does get a lot to do this time around um, was that was that as, re- as a result of the conversations you had with Justin or were they already uh, going in that direction I think there are already certain uh, a certain way down the track. Mm. Um, you know, obviously there was quite a bit of fan reaction last time that felt that the character of McCoy had been somewhat marginalised uh, in, I guess, uh, comparison to his uh, traditional role and function. And to a certain extent, I agreed with that. And mm. uh, so for me, you know, I was reassured by what Justin uh, had talked about um, what he wanted to achieve for the character, but then beyond that, um, working and collaborating with Simon Pegg mm. uh, was ultimately a very rewarding experience. And you know, we worked together to, you know, really uh, elevate the material and deliver something that was going to top the first two that we've done. Mm. You get a lot of great scenes with, uh, with Spock in this one. Yeah, they were, uh, were so much fun to play. I mean, we just to have those two characters that are so diametrically opposed uh, to be thrust into a life-or-death situation and, and have to uh, you know, overcome their differences in order to survive, was, we had so much fun. Mm. Is, uh, is Simon, were Simon and Doug, I mean, Simon's obviously on set when he's playing Scotty, but is he on set as a writer when he's not in the scenes is he there behind yes, the camera yeah, making sure damn it you stick to the script and I wrote <laughs> and if you don't I will bring out the big stick <laughs> yeah there was actually I would say you know and I haven't t- discussed this in, in the previous interviews but the, the w- there was you know sort of a, a point there where uh, you know it's a it's an awkward sort of threshold to cross from mm. having someone who's your friend but is also the writer and if you don't necessarily agree with um, you know the, uh, uh, the, the yeah. Sort of, you know, I hadn't thought juncture. about how difficult it is for him. It would yeah. be for him because normally you get to within this, the sanctum of the actors trailer, we get to talk shit, but we can say, oh, there. You know, like you, you, you have the freedom to do that, and we. And he's right it, there. It was Just awkward <laughs> for him, uh, <laughs> but I can't imagine anybody more equipped to to straddle both worlds. He's 
he's very intelligent emotionally as well yeah. and so um he can sense i mean it's not a situation to me where we if we would have to go to him even though we could because he would sense it D- don't you think if you were troubled with something he'd come over and and unlike other yeah, yeah. Uh, another writer would be able to go I, I can tell you're having some an issue with this and he's he's that kind of, of a person is there much room for improv? On a well, there like is, this? and there's a few. There's a few in the, that are actually made it into the picture, um, and uh, it's uh, it was just a wonderful collaborative environment. And, and, and you know, Simon sent us a, an early draft of the script that he had written. Said, "Well, here it is, lads." And you know, if there's you know anything that you would like to bring forth in your character, then let me know, and let's let's work together. And and that was really kind of the spirit uh, upon which we all embarked on this journey. So what did you say to him about uh, about Bones, and what did you say to him about Sula? Uh, you know, I had always wanted um, to see more of his personal life. It was, you know, the first two were really just him as a professional, and I wanted to see um, some inner turmoil. And uh, uh, this was this was not what uh, I thought would happen, but it mm. certainly wasn't answered. That is to say, he, the stakes in this movie became very personal for him. Yeah, we, but they came to me with the gay family idea. Um, uh, very early on, so I mean, Simon had had thrown that idea out, mm-hmm. and obviously it, it, it's it's a, it's a incredible conversation to have these days. I mean, it was it 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 caused quite a fuss last week. Yeah. At the same time, people are going, "It's no big deal. We we should we you know we should have had but this conversation the, twenty the, years ago." Yeah, that's the. I think that's um, to the filmmakers' credit. That's um, I, I just loved the the nonchalant. Yeah. attitude of the movie i think that's the the triumph of it is mm. not just the the fact that he's gay and the but the fact that it's not anything to the worthy of discussion you know in the future Absolutely. so yeah hopefully that's indicative of where we're going mm. i did this is the first time i'm talking about it but i did request that the husband be asian we ended up having to use doug uh the writer because we couldn't find um, an Asian actor in Dubai willing to do that role. Wow. Okay. But so it was some trouble, and um, but the reason I wanted um, an Asian husband was the, the 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 Asian gay male friends I've had, they have always. Uh, I, I this is my interpretation, I, but I've always felt that they have been reluctant to be with other Asian men because of the culture of shame yeah and and I, and I think other asian men remind them of their family so it was difficult to be with other asian men and i wanted this to be a little bit of a valentine to the to the asian yeah. gay men that i've known in my life to say this is a future in which it's nothing yeah and just like yeah a lot of straight people end up with with people of their own culture because it's easy and it's normal that i wanted to pr- present that variation and I'm sure so many people have asked you about it, you're probably sick of it, but do you have a, a, a reaction to George Takai's reaction to the reaction to the reaction? Yeah, listen, I, I, uh, you know, I had a conversation with George early on, and I, I understand where he's coming from, and I get it. And mm-hmm. um, However, I, I just wish, uh, I, I hope that in the, you know, after he sees the movie and reads... Um, Perhaps some of the electronic uh, responses yeah. that that he's heartened by mm-hmm. how um, by how much 
it means to young people. And, you know, this whole process has made me think again about how important George was in my youth, um, seeing an Asian person on television when there were zero, really, mm. um, and how revolutionary that was for me. And hopefully he can, uh, at least if there's anything good for him to glean from it, that there, there's a lot of gay young people yeah. watching this and going, wow, that's that's cool. That's normal. That's, you know, um, yeah. I think that's important. It was really great to actually go on, online and see that response uh, of a, a generation of young men and women celebrating the fact that they're represented. I think collectively it made us all feel very proud of the fact to be to be yeah. a part of this. Absolutely. Which is something, obviously, Star Trek has been right from the very off. It's now in the 50th year. Right from the beginning, it's been about diversity. It's been about acceptance. It takes place in a world where nobody gives a shit, and quite rightly so, about people's sexual orientation or race or color or any of that stuff. Um, yeah. uh, getting involved with this franchise, I mean, obviously late in the day, as you both did, was that an appeal? Was that part of the uh, the attraction of this? Yeah, show? I think that's one of the enduring appeals about Star Trek, is it pre- presents a hopeful vision of humanity, a, a vision of humanity that's moved beyond... In, in the thirst uh, for uh, for knowledge and uh, adventure and uh, you know on a serious note it, it is uh, it's it's an ideal it's a it, it's a it's a vision of the future that that resonates because it's so f- so far away from where we currently are yeah absolutely um, I listen also I want to say that you know it, it's an American television show and it represents in certain ways, it represents the best of our species, but it, to me, it represents a really the best of American thinking. Mm. And um, you know, like when I came to America, we our first home was in Houston, Texas, and we would take relatives out to see NASA because it. And uh, when when relatives came to visit, it was a big deal because it's like these people did this. Now we're here. Yeah, you know yeah. they they sent a man to the moon. Um, and uh, there's something to me being in Star Trek that is, you know, culturally important to me to to be associated with something, with a part of pop culture that's the best of, yeah, American offering, yeah. you know, the American offering. So I don't think that it's exclusively uh, American. I don't. Yeah, I, I don't. Mean, to me, it, it it's really about a you know a united uh, globe you know and but that's why you, say you there's have something... you know you have you know obviously you know you got a russian and and a, a vulcan and yes. a black woman and it's about inclusion and diversity so going back to the kind of the idea of 50 years of star trek um, do you have a favorite version of trek and you can't say the one that you're in right <laughs> now you have to see can you, you know is it the original series next gen yeah for me it would probably would be the original series i mean yeah. that was i guess that's where i first sort of uh you know became aware of, uh, of of star trek and you know i liked it it was it was fun the show had had swagger and and as a kid i there were points there were certain episodes that you know terrified me and and i above all i loved the characters mm. uh you know i i loved the way kirk Spock and and Bones interact and to see how they would have to overcome their their personal differences and and uh, and I also liked how you know the show would quite often uh, engineer little paradigm shifts where you think the the bad guy is this you know big evil force and then mm. you you suddenly discover you know something about that 
character that makes you think again. And you know, I think that's one of the wonderful things about what Simon's done and beyond. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with with Idris's character. Yeah, absolutely. Although we can talk about that in a spoiler special, maybe some sometime down the line. Um, um, I, and John, I, with you. The original series is my first, so it's the the most special. Uh, the, I but I I watched the Next Generation in high school, and that was sort of m- yeah. mine. And Carl, going back to the idea of uh, talking to Simon about what you wanted to do with bones and put some flesh on the bones, so to speak. I mean, what, what what sort of conversations did you have with him and Doug? Yeah, well, what was important to me was uh, well, was many things, but uh, firstly that his relationship with Kirk wasn't inferred uh, as I yeah. felt, as I felt that it was, and. Um, you know, in this in this one, you actually get to see him be a real friend, and you understand why it's a valued friendship. That he is really there to help Kirk get in touch with what's going on inside, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and in a conciliary kind of a a, a mode, a, almost a psychologist mode, but <laughs> most importantly, just a friend. And that was always one of the aspects about McCoy that I was really. Um, enjoyed of that relationship where Kirk could turn to him and say, "Am I being? Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. whatever." And uh, yeah, so that was important, and uh, that uh, you know, it, it was an opportunity also to explore the nature of McCoy's heroism. Mm. It, it's not defined by his physical bravery, but it's it, it, it's defined by his his courage. His 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 fear, his loyalty, uh, his determination to stand by, you know, his 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 wounded comrade and 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 not abandon him and not you know save himself and mm. you know I think that those altruistic aspects are what makes the character um, so special. Oh, what's the situation like for you guys as well? I, I I wonder this a lot with a lot of franchise actors who have different directors come on. So mm. you worked with JJ in the first two movies. You know these guys inside out. And in comes Justin Lin. Presumably he has his own ideas. And he has his own take on Bones and Sulu and how you guys should play them. Uh, what happens then? How, how does that? Well, actually, that's the wonderful thing about Justin is he came in and first of all was very respectful of of our family mm. and 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 obviously he is a long term fan of Trek himself. Yeah. And so he was really able to come in and build upon what JJ had. Um, had uh, developed and you know working together with Simon uh, I felt like we had uh, a pretty strong brain trust all heading in the same direction and that's that's really important Justin's job was was tough I mean he's charged with you know bringing his own thing into it and upholding the 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 original premise of Trek in an honorable way and also dealing with a bunch of actors who felt like they were invested in were, were around for two films yeah. already. So I thought he did a great juggling job. He was very respectful and and yet forceful with his vision, you know, which if, if that makes any sense. He he came in and he, he had his ideas and somehow it worked. I was observing that in some ways it felt like an independent movie because we had started with a different director and a different script and yeah. that was scrapped and then we went with and Justin but the the release date was not going to change and so there was a sense of you know it could have turned into panic but it it turned very inventive there there was like this independent movie kind of spirit to it where people Justin was really going with gut instincts that he had, and, yeah, yeah. and so was Simon and Doug. And absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and guys, I'll let you go now. But um, Carl, I believe Matt Damon's in this hotel at this very, very moment. I'm gonna hunt on the him floor. Down. I was gonna say, <laughs> I'm gonna get him this time, and I'm just gonna kill his girlfriend. I'm gonna get him. 
You guys have got so much unfinished business. <laughs> so much unfinished business. Carl, John, pleasure. Warren, it was a pleasure talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, thank you. Uh, delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by Sacri Quinto, Sofia Patella, and Chris Pine. I don't know why I pointed you because you know who you are already, <laughs> but that's just one of the things I do. Welcome all. How are you all? Very well, thank you. You're playing Chris and Sacri. You're playing yeah. these characters for the third time. Right. Do you feel that uh, this time around, more than the other times, you, you made them your own? Or do you feel that there's still elements of, of Leonard Nimoy? Uh, and I mean, I feel like we made them our own the first time. Yeah. I mean, that's that was JJ's uh, mandate, really, when we got these jobs, was to bring our own point of view and perspectives to these characters and honor, of course, the origins uh, and, and the actors that created them but to really take them in a new direction and uh so i think it was what we worked to do from the beginning and now i feel like you know for me my connection to this character will always be marked by my relationship with leonard and this mm -hmm. was the first movie that we made without him and uh that was intense and um i feel um a real sense of responsibility to him and to the legacy uh, that he created with his character. And so, uh, you know, I was working with that. And luckily the story mm. uh, paralleled that and, and helped carry me through the experience. But, yeah, I mean, I feel for myself like, uh, like you know, I have a, my own distinct relationship with Spock and my own respect and love for him in a way um, that's informed by Leonard but entirely uh, unique as well. Mm. And uh, Chris, the same for you. I mean, there's still... Now and again, little Shatnerisms going in through your, through your performance. Uh, how, do you, how do you modulate that three films in? Uh, at this point, there's no science behind it other than whenever I want to make myself laugh, I'll do it. And um, um, Spock. Spock. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I definitely, actually, this time felt, um, it wasn't that it was easier, it just felt the most comfortable, I guess. We've done it, we've now been doing it for a little bit, and um, Simon there it just felt like a really like the play there was like the it just felt easier I mean uh, um, what am I trying to say is when you have the writer there who's your big brother essentially who's worked with you writing for you and then mm. throwing you jokes and um, it just felt like a completely collaborative team effort more so probably than any of the other ones and um uh, I've never really felt encumbered by having to live up to what Bill did, but I also really appreciate his kind of sh his Kirk aesthetic. It's a whole thing, as we know, and yeah. and I like I do like to throw nods uh, here and here and there to that. Uh, Sophia, as a, a newcomer to the franchise, uh, is there a, a, a initiation ceremony? Is there a is there a hazing? How how are you welcomed into the franchise by? these two um. I was a bit nervous when I arrived in, in Vancouver because I know they've been together for two franchises <laughs> I'm trying to avoid blinding <laughs> Zach um, and and because yeah they've been together quite for quite a long time and and I was wondering <laughs> how I was going to get welcome there's a roving microphone going around how I was going to fit into that but uh, I met them on a Monday and on Friday we were all having fun and we were no they were they were very nice <laughs> Huh? We did. We spent a lot of great time together. We had a great time. Mm. They're, they're lovely people, and I felt home away from home, mm -hmm. you know, quite rapidly and for a very long time. And then work was not work. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it felt like, generally. Yeah. The same way that right now, you know? 
Yeah, absolutely. And what yeah. about the what about the makeup? I mean, obviously, I imagine there's a few hours for you. Saturday, I used to I you? used to think I had it rough. Yeah. You know, uh, I was like, oh, it's three hours and it's really intense, like whatever. <laughs> and then now, first of all, we have it down to about an hour and forty five minutes. And second of That's all, okay. how long Sophia, was it? It, was, it used to be like three hours. Now it's like an hour and 50 minutes. So wow. Sophia would have to sh- get up at like one in the morning. We would like still be up hanging out. And she'd be like, I have to leave for work. Yeah. It was the <laughs> it was worst intense, for her. She had like five hours of makeup, right? Yeah. And I didn't realize at first what, what it meant. Because I remember I auditioned. I did my first audition and my call back. And I signed my contract right before I knew what I was going to do. Mm. And, and then they showed me the photo. And I thought, yeah, great. This is exciting. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know what it meant. <laughs> she was such a trooper, though. I have to say, I mean, I had such a respect for her commitment and her tirelessness. And, you know, you really were never, you know, always, always just like ready to go. Mm. I mean, pretty impressive. I was, yeah. Thank you. Um, I just want to talk about uh, Justin Lin and yeah. coming to terms with him as well in this, because obviously you guys worked so closely with JJ and forming these characters. Right. And then this, other, this director comes in, presumably with new ideas and, you know, how you might play. I mean, Justin came in with a real... First of all, he came in on uh, an already moving train in a lot of ways. You know, not only have we made two movies before, but there was not a lot of prep time for this film um, for various reasons. And so Justin came in uh, with a real quiet confidence, I would say. You know, J.J., who is such an extrovert and whose style is so um, uh, outward. And um, Justin, who's much more internal, I would say, in his process and... uh, and yet no less confident, you know, he had a very, very clear vision of, of what he wanted to make and how to make it and how to communicate that to us. Uh, he had a lot of respect for all of us and our relationships with one another and our relationships to these characters. And uh, it was a really seamless transition. Of course, we all love and missed JJ, but we were really grateful for Justin's enthusiasm and mm-hmm. his history with the franchise. I mean, it meant a lot to him, mm-hmm. Star Trek as a kid, and, and that came through. Um, and I think what he came up with and the film he made is really exceptional. And, um, so that combined with Simon in a more, um, you know, powerful creative position on this film, I I think was a good combination and, uh, and the transition was really smooth. What does Simon do if he, if you, uh, he's just on set as a writer and you go off script and you improv, what happens then? Does he, does he wield a big stick? Does he yell at you? Does he get physical? Well, there's not much room to <laughs> improv in a film like this. No. This is not, you know, like a Judd Apatow film. There's more dialogue scenes, I guess, but, in, in this one than there were. But what is fun is, you know, you'd try, you'd pitch an idea, like, um, like for instance, the in the beginning of the film, I get chased by a bunch of little people, little things, and uh, they're really actually kind of very cute. And then at the end... Um, <laughs> they come back they come back to the ship with us and I thought it would be a funny idea to have one of them in an outfit at the end of the film and so that was a fun little beat that we Oh, that's you. So it's like a little little things that um and you'd find that on the day and you'd pitch it and then they talked to Doug and Doug be into it. So it was a kind of a it was it was a jam that way. Um No, that's good cuz presumably that means you can now get a script credit, right? Yeah, now you can get a what? A script yeah. credit? Yeah, script yeah. credit as well. Chris gets script credit on this get movie as well. paid twice on totally. this movie. Absolutely. Well, Simon did, so it's good. <laughs> well, yeah. it works for some of us. <laughs> Precisely. Um, yeah, well, thank you, man. Nice Precisely. to, nice to have show. you. Thank you yeah, very much. Appreciate thank it. You. Cheers. Thank Sorry. you. Okay, so that was all the Star Trek interviews, and now let's start the movie reviews section with Star Trek Beyond. Star Trek Beyond is 
Well, let's go back. Star Trek Into Darkness seems to have become, since it was seen by everyone, become this kind of incredibly reviled, weirdly hated film. I didn't think it was that bad. Uh, this is certainly a marked improvement, that yes. said. So people that hate Star Trek Into Darkness, relax. I think you're going to enjoy this one more. I still want to know quite why that film got as much animus as it did. This one is a tighter, more coherent, more emotional, more engaging, more heartfelt Star Trek movie. It's done what I think Batman versus Superman didn't do, which was really, instead of addressing the complaints of the previous film, Man of Steel's sort of urban catastrophe, it kind of added to it. This one has taken some of the criticisms of Into Darkness and actually remedied them. It's gone into space. It's got a lot more of the Star Trekiness back. It's got a lot more of the sort of team camaraderie. It's a film that explores the lovely little kind of chemistry between different characters that we love about Star Trek. So you've got Bones and Spock who for me are Zachary Quinto and Carl Urban, who are, are sort of MVPs here. They spend a lot of time together in this movie and they have great kind of chemistry. You've got <coughs> Scotty, Simon Pegg, who wrote this one, did Co- a great co-wrote, job. Yeah. Co-wrote yeah. Um, with um, Sophia Patella's Jailer, this kind of kick-ass alien. Um, so there's lots of little kind of bits of you know alchemy taking place on screen, which I really, really liked. Um, the story it takes them into perhaps less uncharted space in the sense that you've got this alien with a grudge played by Idris Elba it's Kral he's got this gnarled visage and he's got a he's got a grudge against the federation um he has one line where he says it's time you know the the frontier push back um on the federation so there's kind of the the, the usual political you know imperialist subtext in, in in this basically this kind of anarchist and there's uh, kind of a stronger sense of Star Trek geography to this. It's got a bit more of a feel of like them on a foreign, on an alien planet, which we haven't really seen too much of by the beginning of the last one, perhaps. Mm. Um, it's definitely an improvement. And I think Chris Pine does a great job as Kirk. I really enjoyed the way it opens with ennui, mm. effectively. It's that thing of them just traveling. They've been in space for three years and they're just kind of bored. <laughs> and he's just a bit over it. And I like that it addressed that. Yeah. I thought that was a really nice... I'm, I'm assuming quite a lot of Simon Pegg in that whole sequence. But it, it was confident in itself to say, we're just going to show something that isn't necessarily kinetic and blockbustery. It's just a slightly kind of more measured start, which shows something that we haven't really seen before in, in, the Star, in this rebooted Star Trek universe. I love that. Um, there's lots of lots of little bits to enjoy one thing i struggled with a little bit with um with the direction was i found it a little muddled i found some of the action choreography and the geography of the action sequences a little confusing Mm -hmm. um and a bit muddied i think jj abrams is perhaps uh, he handles those sequences perhaps slightly better that the camera moves relentlessly um and in different angles and gravity plays quite a big role in this one so <coughs> if you think about that sequence in inception in the corridor fight there's a lot of things that try and emulate that but in the end you're just kind of a bit like it could be because i sat two rows from the front of the imax that, oh, that was a mistake i'm that gonna say help. that uh, just as a caveat so I, yeah. I actually thought that uh, justin lynn who's the new director in this movie handled all the action stuff well and i think a lot of people may, may have gone into this film slightly concerned that he was going to fast and furious uh star trek and he doesn't at all um as phil said there's an emphasis here uh on talking and on teamwork and on taking uh Star Trek characters and breaking them up into sometimes unexpected groups 
But uh, one of the things I absolutely loved about this movie, and you mentioned it there, was the the grouping of of Bones and Spock. Um, just for me, Kirk, Bones, and Spock are the the heart of, of original Trek. Certainly, they're the holy trinity, as far as I'm concerned. I think they were Bones in particular was basically a cameo in yeah. Star Trek: Into Darkness, which you know, as you heard in the interview there with Carl Urban, is one of the reasons why he thought maybe I won't come back for this one. But here, he's very much up front and center. Uh, gets a lot to do. They're very funny together. They're quite moving together, which is uh, which is interesting as well. It's, uh, finding new depth and shade in that relationship. Thirteen films in is is really interesting. I like the fact that it feels like a big old Star Trek episode to me it feels like an episode where they get stranded on a, on a planet but I, but I liked this film a lot I, I did too I would actually disagree I'm slightly more with Phil on the action I think I was generally clear on what they wanted to accomplish from a given action scene but I wasn't always clear what I was seeing in each shot um, so that was kind of slightly annoyed me sometimes but this is much more of an ensemble piece than either Into Darkness or re- even 2009 Star Trek I think there's been a clear effort on the part of the writers to give everyone something to do. Sulu, in particular, gets a much greater role this time, I think. Um, But yes, as you say, Bones as well. The only thing I slightly missed, I love that there was more Bones and Spock and Bones and Kirk. Um, There was a little bit too little Kirk and Spock. I could have done with one or two more scenes there. Especially given um, where the plot takes them. Especially given where the plot takes them, which we won't go into. Yeah, we uh, will. Until the spoiler podcast. Um, But I think generally speaking that that stuff was all good I mean the the bad guy is just a bad guy for the most part I think mm-hmm. Idris Elba gives him a little bit more gravity than the script does actually and the the thing that he wants to do is MacGuffin 101 like it does not matter at all it could not matter less quite frankly what he's after but if you could just kind of go with that then then it's fine um, yeah, it's the same for me it, it, his bad guy was the big disappointment of the film for me because it's such a generic role yeah you do not need Idris Elba um, I think, but I think you, you almost do because it, yeah. there's nothing else to it except Idris Elba. I don't think, I don't think he really elevated that much no. either. Um, um, the the other thing I like is that it it gives it a bit more sense of of sci-fi. I think this one. So they go to a space station called Yorktown. Uh, everything comes back to Hamilton. There's a Battle of Yorktown song in Hamilton. Anyway. Um, they go to a space station, which is a proper sci-fi space station. It could have come straight out of an Ian M. Banks culture novel. It could be nearly a GSV. I don't think it's that big. It's probably an MSV, but it's seriously culture heavy. And that is great to see Like some pe- somebody taking a little bit of a risk in terms of the design of these uh, sci-fi elements. And that was awesome. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, this movie. I think... I. I actually think that some of the characters do get overlooked. I think Uhura gets overlooked an awful lot. I think it almost feels like her subplot got trimmed or cut in some way. But the emphasis for me on the main three, on Kirk, Spock and Bones, Kirk in particular, I think he gets a... He, he, Chris Pine's fantastic in this film. Really good. Really, really yeah, good. Yeah, he's good. I, I disagree um, about Uhura. I think, I think she good. barely gets anything to do. Are you kidding? But she has all those scenes with with Crowell. Mm, didn't like them. Okay. But there we go. Four stars. Four stars. Four stars. I reviewed it for Empire. I gave it four stars. I think this movie is a lot of fun. I think it it uh, is a reaction in many ways to the criticisms of Star Trek in the Darkness, which again, this you know just to to make clarify something we said as well on the uh, Star Trek 50th anniversary podcast, which is you know available to listen to now if you want to do that. Um, Star Trek in the Darkness is not a terrible film. It just goes off the rails badly, I would say, in the third act. Um, but there's the there you go. So four stars for. Star Trek Beyond, a return to form. Uh, go see. Uh, next up, Steven Spielberg tackles the BFG, Roald Dahl's the BFG. Helen? 
Right, so this is the story of an orphan called Sophie, who's played by Ruby Barnhill, and she is snatched from her bed one night by a giant, uh, who's played by Mark Rylance and some CG. She basically saw the giant, uh, that's not allowed, so he kidnaps her and takes her back to his country. He is a big, friendly giant. However, his stablemates are not so much. They are much bigger, much less friendly giants. And so the two, Sophie and and the BFG, have to sort of team up to, first of all, keep her out of their clutches, and then also, you know, try and stop them from eating people around the world. This is sort of set in a... A, fant- a fantasy London, to be perfectly honest. It seems slightly 80s um, in a few respects late on, but at the, at the same time, sometimes it seems almost kind of Peter Panny turn of the century. Sometimes it seems sort of 1940s blitzy. So it's a, it's a really just a kind of a fantastical, the kind of idea you'd have of London if you'd only ever read about it in books, mostly by Francis Hodgson Burnett and people like that. But the BFG himself is uh, is a wonderful creation. So he was uh, obviously uh, one of uh, Roald Dahl's greatest characters, I think. And Mark Rylance does him justice and delivers lines which no human being should be able to deliver with a straight face because the BFG has a very particular vocabulary. Um, the word snozcumbers is about the least of it. Chris, you, you knew some of those words. What did you have? Oh, twitchy figglers. He's always talking about his twitchy figglers. And he's got some other things. Um... I can't repeat it in here what I say about the BFG. Um, I thought with my own words. But yeah, let's just leave it at that, shall we? Okay, <laughs> okay. probably best. But, <laughs> but the thing is, I mean, you just come out of this wanting to hug the BFG, which I think is the, the primary thing that you have to get from this film. The BFG has to be intensely lovable, likable mm. character. And he is difficult at times and he doesn't always, he isn't always honest and forthcoming with, with, uh, with Sophie about what's going on. But there's so much heart to him that you kind of don't care. Um, and and I think that's the big takeaway. There are slow bits in this film. There are bits where it drags a little bit and you're like, I don't care anymore. Let's move on. Um, <laughs> but you kind of don't care because you're still in it with the character. And and fair play to Ruby Barnhill as well. I think mm-hmm. actually she's she was, what, 12 when this was made? And she does a phenomenal, phenomenal job uh, of being not annoying child actor uh, which I think is is you know all too rare especially in oh, God, yeah. especially British. imagine how yeah you know, how it was filmed yeah you know with Mark Rylance in a mocap suit and all the craziness and having to react to something that's how tall is he and then the other giants are massively taller yeah. com- even compared to him um, I think this is a, a lovely film it's a very warm family friendly film I saw it with my two young nephews and they they both loved it they mm-hmm. loved all the fart jokes and the snarls cumbers and the big giants and there's this lovely motif throughout where when he's in London he evades detection by assuming shapes around him um, lampposts and cars and and trees and he's not a shapeshifter but he manages to make it look as if he's the the shape of something Um, I like little jokes like that it's it's a very strange film and that it is it has a story but it's plotless in a weird way it it meanders to a conclusion There's no real sense of peril uh, necessarily. I thought I was really worried for the BFG. I will say that. There's no real sense of peril in terms of Sophie. You don't ever imagine she's going to get eaten by the other bad giants. But I always thought they were just going to start slapping the BFG senseless because there's some really nasty pieces of work in this yeah, movie. Yeah, they really bully him. Yeah, like, they really do. Very openly. Yeah. And I actually was a little bit worried for Sophie because they, they sort of, they added in or certainly magnified 
the sense in the book that he he had a, a sort of a pet child, if you mm. will, in, in a very non-wrong way before. So in, sometime in Victorian times, he'd he'd brought another child to his to his cave to his sanctuary, and the other giants had found that child. Mm. And that sort of gradually yeah. becomes clear through, through the film. I'm sorry, I don't think it's a, really a spoiler to say that because I think you. Of course, yeah, yeah. I also, but you know, pr- on a practical level, Sophie's what four feet tall, and these other giants are about fifty, fifty, sixty yeah. feet tall, and one child to go between seven giants. I mean, that wouldn't sustain them for more. That's a snack. It's a campaign. Wow, yeah, you're right, Chris. So that, that's the problem with. So it. that's how I equated it in my head. It was like, well, she's not in peril because why would they want to eat her? Because that would be me, like me, turning the office upside down to find one finger of Kit Kat, which I have done. Which in fairness, many times, uh, many many times, and now so I'm hungry again. So I think again. now you see why you're now yeah, she doesn't work. I was wrong. Yeah. I was so wrong. But, for, <laughs> but this is and also this is the last. Um, uh, script from Melissa Matheson. Yes, um, and and I think it's a very very strong adaptation in that sense. It's um, y- yes, it meanders in the in particularly in the middle, um, but she finds the right tone to make it somehow work and to make you not question the things that shouldn't make any sense. Yeah, and there's some lovely Spielberg visual flourishes as well. There's a wonderful sequence where. Uh, the BFG takes Sophie dream catching. Uh, that's just a lovely sequence. Oh, and there's a really funny bit where they have tea with the Queen. Yes, and and so much of that. I love that so much of that was taken straight from the book. So the the descriptions of how they build a table for the BFG, mm. straight from the book and straight from uh, Quentin Blake's drawings. And for you know for a child of the eighties, that's really really exciting. Absolutely, and Mark Rylance very very good. So okay. I just wondered. I haven't seen this film. Two quick questions. Mm-hmm. Which other Steven Spielberg film did it most make you think of? Um, weirdly, Hook without the excesses. Yeah, there was there was a little bit okay. of Hook in in the London scenes, especially. Yeah. I was thinking of Hook quite a, quite a bit. And and in terms of another beloved children's story in which a girl gets taken to another parallel place, sure, uh, through the Looking Glass, Alice in Wonderland. Where where does this one go right? Where that one doesn't. It's much less weird than that, and I think it's it's much more focused on character than that was. It's mm. really it is a you know a character piece for for long sections with just Sophie and the BFG talking. Right. And actually, you know, in some ways that's meandering. In some ways, that's a, a great strength of the film because what you actually want is to learn more about these two very very lonely characters who are don't really fit in anywhere, and they f- and they find a sort of a connection with each other, and that's sort of lovely. I've just thought of a version of this, this movie where the BFGs played by Larry David. Now I can't get it out of my head. That would not work, Chris. Stop it. How amazing would that Stop be? Stop it. It would be amazing. <laughs> Mark Rylance for the win. He is very, very good. He's a good, he's a good actor, that Mark Rylance. Uh, you know, they, you know, should, they, should, they should give him a go on more, more things. You might be right about that, yeah. yeah. How close is he to egotting? I think he's. I think he may be only one letter off. I don't know. Good maybe question. two. Maybe two. I don't know. Does he does he do the American stuff? Does he go to Broadway? Yeah, he's been on Broadway. He, does? Yeah, he was yeah. on Broadway recently. Yeah. Okay, so we just you know presume he won. I could look it up, but <laughs> I, I find it better to wallow in ignorance. So I'm going to assume that he hasn't won a Grammy. Yeah, I think I think it's the Grammy he's missing. Uh, has he won an Emmy? What would he have been in? Wolf Hall, maybe. Know. Helen's looking it up. This I'm is live googling. <laughs> live googling. I love it. Okay. David Mark Rylance. What's the other bit? Waters. Is that his name? David Mark Rylance Waters. Yeah. Hang on a second. So, his stage name is his two middle names. Oh, my word. We're through the looking glass here, people. Mind blown. I'm absolutely... I don't know what to do with that information. 
That's extraordinary. It's like when you first discovered that Tom Cruise's real name is actually Thomas Cruise Maypother the third, the fourth, the fourth. Or that Bradley Pitt is actually William Bradley Pitt. Wow. You just don't know. Bruce Willis, Walter Bruce Willis. Amazing. Uh, Christopher Thomas Ambrose Hewitt. Ah, uh, he was only nominated for an Emmy. He has not yet won an Emmy. Ah, uh, we'll get him there. We'll get but, him there. But he's—I mean, in in his defense, he's got um, one of these an days. Oscar, BAFTAs by the truckful, mm. Olivier's by the truckful, <laughs> Tonys by the truckful. So he's like he's doing all right. Let's not get. He's too got upset his for him. twitchy figures and all kinds of awards. Lovely stuff. Three stars then for the BFG. Right. We're going to do something now. We're going to do something a bit different now okay. in this reviews section. Yeah. Because we're going to review Batman versus Superman. Dawn oh, of Justice. I never had the chance before. Did you not? No. That's right, you weren't here. You weren't here. I was on holiday. Okay, this this might take a bit longer than anticipated. <laughs> um, because this week, in this country at least, came out a couple of weeks ago in the States, Batman v Superman, uh, Dawn of Justice, the ultimate edition, was released digitally, mm-hmm. digitally, on... Um, on iTunes and various other digital platforms. 30 minutes of additional footage. Three hours now. Zack Snyder's superhero behemoth. Um, and Helen and I are going to talk about it because my opinion of the movie has changed somewhat and Helen's is not. Mm. Seems fair to say. I thought it was longer. <laughs> but tell me tell me your view, Chris. I think it's a better film. Right. I don't think it's a perfect film no. and I don't think that the sow's ear has become a silk purse overnight <laughs> I really don't think that in any way or sh- uh, shape or form but I will say this I think if they'd released this version in cinemas back in March uh-huh. uh, it wouldn't have attracted half of the brickbats that it did uh, I think uh, all the the talk about removing Zack Snyder from Justice League which obviously never came to pass that might never have happened I, I think it is a better more satisfying film that fills in many of the plot holes that the uh, theatrical version have. Little things like Lex Luthor's entire plot are now made clear (laughs) uh, which I enjoyed. There is more substance to Clark Kent's apparent out of nowhere hatred of the Batman. Um, You get some scenes of Clark pounding the the bat beat in Gotham and walking around and talking to people going so tell me why this Batman is bad essentially you get a little bit more for Lewis Lane to do a little bit more for Amy Adams to do not many extended scenes with uh, the bat all the Bruce Wayne Mm. stuff seems to be pretty much intact as far as I could tell having seen the theatrical version three times there is only one slight addition to Wonder Woman where she gets mansplained to by some museum dude. And there's an element of that in the theatrical version, but this time he really goes for it in terms of the mansplaining. Um, mansplaining, in case you don't know, Helen, is uh, <laughs> when a man explains something to a woman in a patronising manner. Thanks, Chris. Do you get that? So helpful. Okay, I'm thinking mansplaining while I'm saying that as well. I'm <laughs> so are. sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> so, um, I enjoyed it. I think it, because uh, I don't agree with the initial, initial Empire Review, I think it's a two-star film. That for me now is a three-star film. I enjoyed this one more. It feels like a more complete experience. Um, I have to disagree. <laughs> I, you, I have, s- you, have, you have 90 <laughs> seconds. And another thing. Um, no, I, I still think, I think basically what the Ultimate Edition does is it gives us more of plots that we didn't need in the first place. It adds more complication to backstory that we didn't care about. And... Uh, Genuinely, yeah. I, I just find it mostly frustrating. Hey, Jimmy Olsen got a line. He got to say his name on screen before they shot him in the head. That's great. Um, there was a, a Zack Snyder cameo as the coach of a football team on TV. I don't remember that oh, in theatrical that. cut, but it, I think it was him. But anyway, okay. um, that, that line with the director of the museum talking at length, 
apparently with no context. Like, she doesn't even get a word in. I thought it was bloody awful. She still doesn't get named in this one uh, at any point. At no point in the movie, you hear the, the, the stewardess. I mean, that's, the stewardess says Diana. The stewardess says Miss Prince, Miss Prince, Prince, yeah. Prince but she doesn't go, I'm Diana, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Uh, there's still some flaws. There's still a lot of flaws. Still I mean, a lot it, of flaws. it's still the same movie. So if the f- some of the flaws still apply, the whole Batman Superman thing is is built on very very shaky ground. Their enmity is built on very very shaky Awful ground. ground. And, uh, and who calls his mother Martha? Like it annoyed yeah. me when he called out for you're killing Martha. Why did you say that name? No reason. There is yeah. no reason why he would say that na- name because he calls his mother mom. I just don't. Oh. Anyway, and so that annoyed me still. Uh, I mean, the, the fact that we're still getting bat backstory annoyed me. We don't need it. Uh, the, the way that backstory was portrayed was wrong. Um, Superman is wrong. His parents are wrong. Mm-hmm. I just, I, 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 no, I didn't like. I liked Lawrence Fishburne. <laughs> I like that you have an editor in a movie. I like that you have an editor of a newspaper in a movie set in the modern age or something like it, worrying about budgets. I think that was great. Yeah, but then still giving his ace reporter a helicopter <laughs> a out of helicopter nowhere. helicopter ca- to go across the bay. I can't even get a taxi receipt paid. What's, Dude, <laughs> what's going on? I, do, I just, I still just, I, I, I fundamentally don't think you should be allowed to make a superhero movie, a Superman movie, if you don't like Superman. And, and I don't think that they like Superman. And I certainly don't think that they get Superman and what he is. Once again, the only time we really see him save anybody in this movie, it's either Lois Lane, which doesn't count, or it's a montage. Uh, anyway. Just I, I, Still, you know, there are bits that we, we talked about this. There are bits that mm. I don't hate. I, 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 think, <laughs> I think Ben Affleck is fine. <laughs> I think Jeremy Irons is fine. Yeah. I don't think it's wrong with their performances. I just think the whole thing is, you know, fundamentally misconceived. So if you wonder where Helen was back in March, <laughs> that was the Cliff Notes version Woman, of, her, of her rant. Um, that, that you would have ranted had you been on the podcast oh, God, yeah. back, at the, back in the day. Genuinely, I went into this. I mean, it's a long film. Am I right in thinking it's the only version of the film that now exists? You cannot get the theatrical version? Uh, I, I I watched it on a Czech disc last night. Uh, okay. you, I think you watched the digital... You watched I, it on yeah, Czech. I, I bought it. The yeah. Czech disc uh, did have two discs. It had the theatrical It does. The, okay, because I, um, I bought the uh, the iTunes version. And I, I'm pretty sure that only had the uh, the ultimate edition. I'm maybe talking out of my super arse completely, but you know that's but it's intriguing. I'd love super, to... Uh, sorry. Uh, we were actually watching it. The, the flash forward to the future. Yeah. Uh, this is... Very. I don't think this is a spoiler. Actually, I'm going to go say it. Uh, the flash forward to the future that Batman has that vision of the monstrous Superman, yep. and there's a guy hanging next to him with blue bits on his cover, on his costume. And my sister thought that might be Nightwing, um, but we couldn't see if he had the world's greatest arse to check it out. Anyway, when you said super arse, it just reminded me of that. Interesting. Interesting. Huh. I hadn't seen that. Yeah, but if if they introduced the Bat Family and that those kind of characters, I think that would yeah. actually be really interesting. So fingers crossed for that. In yeah, future. but that's that's the problem. I'm, I'm talking about the flaws that remain in this movie. It still does have about four dream sequences too many, um, and dream sequences as well, in which major exposition seems to be delivered to people, which is okay. Um, but there's still there's still a lot to like about this film, and I, I, yeah, some of the plot stuff, the Scoop McNary subplot. The Holly Hunter thing is the Holly Hunter plot is given a little bit more depth. That sequence in the Capitol building is given yeah. a little bit more now. Um, makes they, a little they, bit more they sense. They do say that Superman at least helped carry people out of the building before buggering off. Precisely, it doesn't. Yeah, I mean they say it, they don't show it, but we do see it. We do see. We do see one person. He he does he does try and save one person rather than standing in the flames looking like he's just let off a fart. Yeah, and then buggering off. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so an improvement for me again. 
Not a great film, but an improvement. And I think, uh, honestly, I, I do genuinely believe if they'd released this version, they would have uh, avoided a lot of subsequent problems. But there you go. So, stick with the theatrical uh, release. Star rating for this. Three stars then for Batman v Superman. Colon, Dawn of Justice. Dash, Ultimate Edition. Right, there we go. And that right. is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun. We're going to be joined by two directing heavyweights. <gasps> we got Jason Bourne's Paul Greengrass. Ooh. Finding Dory's Andrew Stanton. Ooh. And his producer, Lindsay Collins. Lovely. All very, very exciting indeed. Uh, until then, it's goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. It's good to have you back, man. Thanks so much. It's been really nice to be back. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be a stranger. I shan't be. Why should I be? I'm here. Excellent. Um, it's goodbye from Helen. Toodaloo. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to reminisce about my adventures yesterday on Insert Name of Film Here with uh, that wonderful actor. Insert Name of Actor Here. Uh, see you next week when we'll be talking about Insert Name of Podcast Here. You can say that bit. Oh, yeah. Em- Empire Podcast. There we go. That's the one. Uh, thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye. <laughs>